The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, theologian Robert T. Walker discusses Jesus' resurrection, how it frees us and is the beginning of the reconstitution of everything. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell. As you were working on the project of, of uh, Incarnation and Atonement, what were some of the uh, memorable moments during the process? Uh, it's hard to answer that in a way because I'm not sure that there was any one particular moment. But um, working on the whole thing, it was deeply moving. Um, I mean, it's sort of you felt this is precious, this is wonderful stuff. Um, and, I mean, I heard all the lectures, and yet, but coming back to it, it just, it swept over me all, uh, uh, all over again. Uh, and all sorts of things I reappreciated or, uh, or struck me with much greater force. All sorts of things. It's just been a, a wonderful experience uh, and very rewarding. Do you remember a couple of those that that stand out? Uh, For example, his whole emphasis on the resurrection and the meaning of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Normally we think the gospel is the cross and then the resurrection is the kind of an extra. Yeah. But in many ways it's the resurrection. I mean, you can't separate the two. There's a verse of Paul that Jesus was put to death for our sins and raised for our justification. Raised for our justification. In other words, it's the resurrection that makes us righteous. The cross perhaps puts away our sins, but it's the resurrection that makes us righteous. And the resurrection is an almighty event. It's not just the, the, the raising of a body from, from the death. It's the beginning of a new creation. The beginning of the renewal of all of space and time. And for Torrance... Um, he brings out the fact that it's the resurrection is forgiveness. It's not just the proof of forgiveness, it is forgiveness. Because in the Bible, sin and death are always linked. So for God to, to undo sin means to undo death. And so uh, the resurrection, that means, is God's undoing sin. It's raising somebody who's taken our sin out of the grave. So that is our resurrection. And that's why Paul says, if Christ is not raised, we are still in our sins. So something like that, uh, which we often bypass, it just hit me uh, you know, with renewed force. And there are all sorts of you know, nuggets like that uh, in the book. That turns everything on its head, doesn't it? It's, oh, yeah. Instead of... Instead of hoping our sins are forgiven, if we, if we repent well enough, it gives us full assurance of salvation because Christ has already done everything. It's a, what a joy. Yes. What a, what a yes. rest, what peace. Yes, the resurrection of Jesus is our forgiveness in action. They're identical. God forgiving, God raising Christ, the same thing. Wow. You mentioned it, the resurrection as, the, as a new creation, as a starting place for uh, 
for everything, for the implications for the entire universe, for the whole creation. Could you elaborate on that? Yes, indeed. In the incarnation means that God has taken part of the stuff of the old creation, uh, our body, and in it has died. Uh, but and und- undone the sin. So that when he rose, that was the beginning of the new creation. And the early fathers had, a, uh, had an analogy. They said that when a baby is born, the head comes out first, and that's the hard part. Uh, but once the head has come out, you know the rest of the body will follow. And they use that of Christ, that he's the, he's the head. He's the, f- the firstborn, the, f- the first fruits. And he's the head that's come out first. So the whole of the rest of creation will follow in what's happened to Christ. And that means the, literally the renewal of all of space and time. The whole physical creation will be renewed in Christ uh, and reconstituted under him as the new head. And that's the um, unbelievably cosmic dimension of the New Testament. Uh, and that comes out extremely well um, in Torrance's writings. He has a very good understanding of that. Um, that this, the resurrection is not just somebody being raised from the dead. It's the beginning of the whole new reconstitution of everything. That we will be... Uh, it's the beginning of heaven and earth. That would imply that um, we, don't under, we don't know what space and time will look like or be like uh, after in the resurrection uh, once we are immortal. What is that? Uh, what, what will that look like is something that uh, it, not like what we experience now, perhaps? Yes. Um, obviously, we can't say. Uh, what we can say, that it will be this creation, these bodies of ours, uh, will recognize each other uh, so there'll be continuity. And yet, what it will be like when creation is freed from sin and death and corruption and injustice, we can't say. It'll be far more wonderful uh, and glorious. We can only look forward to it. The Bible says it, uh, it does not yet appear. We cannot see yet see what we shall be like. But we know that when he comes, when Christ comes again, we will be like him. And it speaks of Jesus now having a new and more glorious body, a body which no longer dies. He, after his resurrection, he appeared to the uh, disciples several times, including on the sea shore, uh, cooking a meal and eating it with them. Yes. And yet this was a resurrected body that he was appearing in. And he was able to enjoy food and fellowship just fine. Yes, um, I like those stories. Um, because, I mean, dead men don't rise from the dead. So it's quite striking that the first reaction of the disciples is to, they don't believe it. I mean, uh, the risen Jesus meets you know, some of the women. And they go and tell you know, the disciples he's risen. And they don't believe it. And they're afraid. Because, you know, I mean, is this a ghost? So no, it's real. And the fact that Jesus has raised, he's the beginning of a new creation. So in the 40 days that he was on earth, the new creation was overlapping 
with the old creation. Um, but when he ascended, we can no longer see the new creation that's there in Christ. We know it by faith. And we know it because uh, we meet and know Christ through the Spirit. So we know the reality of it. And that's what gives the New Testament its tremendous sense of victory and of triumph and of looking forward to what we will be. But it's not just pie in the sky. <laughs> it's the renewal of our whole, this whole wonderful creation. We're saved by grace through faith. And the scriptures tell us that even that is not our own. Martin Luther set, goes to great lengths to explain that we must not look at faith as another work because we're not saved by our works. So faith cannot be a work. So how, how, does, how do the eyes of faith work? How does, how, what is faith? And how are we to see this new creation and believe and trust Christ that we're in it? Um, where does this faith come from? And, and how is it not a work? It's something that happens in us. Um, which is God's work. But it, it's something that really happens in us. We come to see and understand and believe. Um, but the very nature of that is that we know that it's through God's work that we come to understand, because this is not something that we could believe for ourselves, so that we really do believe and understand. Um, Torrance says it uses the analogy of the virgin birth. Uh, Mary did nothing to conceive Jesus. Joseph was set aside. There was no human input. Christ was born, a man. Uh, Something happened in Mary. And she gave birth. Uh, And all she did, she was told it would happen, and she said, Amen. And so faith is a bit like that, that God has become man for us, uh, to believe, to do everything for us, and we say amen to it. And our amen is our, the way it happens in us. We've understood that it's for us, and we say amen. And we live out of it, we live out of what Christ has done for us. Um, so it's, there's something real that happens in us. It's a real understanding, and yet it's God's work. So our job is to, is to believe what is so. He is, therefore we don't have to be afraid. Yes, to believe the gospel, to rejoice in what Christ has done for us, not just as God, but as man. Uh, your degrees are in uh, philosophy and, and theology, How does Trinitarian theology bear on philosophy? Um, Yes, I did a full degree in philosophy, and I find that very useful. It it does uh, give a conceptual understanding, which isn't necessary, but it does help uh, to understand theology. I mean, I enjoyed my studies in philosophy hugely. Uh, When I did theology, it was... It was going somewhere. There was a purpose, there was a truth, there was a reality. And the heart of the, of the reality of the Christian faith is, is the Trinity, God in Christ. And um, that gives us 
a grasp of reality as it is. So that having that grasp at once deepens and enriches our understanding of the whole the rest of the world, of science, of philosophy, etc. And the philosophy helps to understand it. Same time, the theology enriches philosophy. To Trinitarian theology, it it gives a deeper dimension and what I would say is that when that theology helps us to think in a profound way, because in the gospel we know God. In theology, we are knowing God not just with our feelings, our hearts, with our minds. And our minds are inevitably deepened and stretched. So for me, there's a link between that and the fact that I think it's true to say most of the really good philosophers today are Christians which is a remarkable fact. Academic work and, uh, and working on a major project like this and so on is not all you do. You're actually involved in uh, outdoor sports. At, can you tell us about that? Yes, um, uh, I'm very fortunate. Um, I have a job. Uh, Edinburgh University has an outdoor centre on Loch Tay. That's a lake in the Highlands. Uh, fabulously beautiful setting and um, I've worked there almost every weekend of the year except for uh, uh, July and August and four or five months of the year to midweeks as well and so I teach kayaking, canoeing, mountain biking, cross-country skiing, hill walking, sometimes sailing and windsurfing and I just love that. It's out in the open air, it's exercise, it's doing what uh, I love and uh, sharing with people. And it's an ideal balance to the academic work, to, to theology. We have just a little bit of time remaining. And in that time, I wonder if you would mind sharing some of your personal observations, reflections on your uncle Tom, Thomas F. Torrance. Yes, um, I got to know him uh, much better at the end of his life. Uh, what, having been asked to edit... Uh, these lectures of his after a stroke and he was unfortunately in a hospital and in a nursing home for the last few years of his life and I visited him uh, you know, once or twice a week so I got to know him very well. Things that come across, um, he's very, very personable. He took an intense interest in people. Uh, when he died, uh, a number of fellow students wrote or phoned up his brother and said that what they remembered about Tom was not his academic learning, although he was, you know, an absolute, you know, the amount that he knew was incredible. What they remembered was his pastoral concern for them as students. Uh, and he was, he was a minister, um, and the pastoral side was always very, very strong. So that he was, he was unique, a combination, a minister, a pastor. He prayed for his students. He prayed for all the family uh, each day. He read the Bible each day. Uh, his pastoral side, you've got the academic side, uh, his knowledge of field after field of history, uh, of theology. It's just amazing. He knew science. Uh, he he was, had, had incredible energy. He worked at great speed. Um, and he, he somehow held all these things together. He was a, a unique, new synthesis, 
uh, of theology and of life. His, I mean, his experiences in the war, I mean, that would be an adventure book in itself. I mean, some of the experiences. Uh, I, mean, I remember um, one of the stories, uh, I used to try to get him you know, going in some of his war memories, because even though I'd heard them, it was good to hear them again. And one time he was out on patrol uh, with the soldiers. He insisted on being with the soldiers uh, when he could. And they were given skis. And this was in Italy uh, in winter. And uh, skiing down, one of his skis came off. It was, it was badly fitting. And it clattered down the hillside and made a noise and alerted the Germans. Uh, Germans and they began firing at him. So he had to ski down on one ski... <laughs> to avoid enemy fire. And there are numerous occasions when his life appeared to have been saved by miracle. You know, they'd be sheltering down, you know, and the person on the, you know, um, in a trench, and the person on the left and the right would be killed. Or he'd sleep in, uh, in his Land Rover at night. And then one night he'd, for some reason, didn't sleep there. And the next day there was a bullet hole right through where he would have been sleeping. So he's a man of tremendous energy. In fact, he came back from the war and he said, Mother, I'm not cut out to be an academic. I'm a man of action. <laughs> and he had this tremendous energy. Tell us about your mother. She, she's his sister. And uh, you just, I'm curious about how it was to live with, uh, with someone who came from such a family. It was an immense privilege. Um, there were six children, three sons and three daughters. Um, they were all given to the Lord before they were born uh, or dedicated. And um, the way that worked out was that the three sons all became ministers and the three daughters all made ministers. And um, it was just a tremendous privilege to have that theological understanding in the family. My father, um, he, he was a medic. And then going out as a missionary to Africa, he trained as a minister. But his, I mean, he was a great sportsman. He played hockey for Scotland. Yeah. And he was very good with his hands. So that, uh, and I combined both. Um, you know, I love sport. Um, I like doing do-it-yourself. But in many ways, the heart of me is theology. It's um, knowing God, understanding the Christian faith, helping to communicate it to others. uh, To me, we're made to be, use our minds. Um, We know God with the whole of ourselves. And most Christians, we tend not to use our minds about God. Uh, So we miss out on a lot. But uh, life is, a human life is all in all its richness. It's about being part of the world, about doing things. Uh, so sport for me uh, is, it happens to be my work. Uh, but I think it's important for people to be active in some way to use their bodies, whether it's in sport or painting or woodwork, because we're made to be physical beings. And so it's, to me it's, it's good to combine the two. There's really no such thing as a separation then, is there, between secular uh, for us, if we, if we know who we are in Christ, there's no separation between secular and spiritual, as it were, where... No, there shouldn't be. 
Um, and that, uh, that, uh, uh, that's, the, that's part of the meaning of the Incarnation, that God has become man. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, the human being is body and soul as a unity. And the Old Testament has no concept of a soul apart from the body. So that when the body dies, that's it, we're dead. In the Old Testament, the soul is thought of as a living body, a body with breath in it. And of course, that's the, why the, the resurrection in the New Testament is so fundamental. Because uh, if we're not raised, that, uh, then that's it. So that God loves this physical world. He made it as physical. He's come to save it as physical. So he became a physical being, became man. And he rose in the body. And, he, and Jesus is forever bodily. So we will forever be human. You know, some religions, we stop being human. We uh, actually become God. We, we, we lose our individuality. But the, part of the glory of the Christian Hebrew uh, tradition is that God loves us as we are. You know, men and women, children of flesh and blood. And we will be forever be human. Did Tom Torrance ever talk about pets? I received questions frequently, and uh, I know C.S. Lewis had made some uh, statements about it. Did he ever comment on... uh... Uh, He was a keen horse rider uh, when he um, grew up in China. In fact, he taught the mule to jump. (laughs) The mule had had never done that before. Um, He skied, uh, and... um, the, he always, uh, he and his family always had several dogs, you know, and so, yeah, they, uh, they loved their pets, and he used to take the dogs for a daily walk. And uh, when you go to the house, there's this furious barking, you know, all the dogs barking, <laughs> you know, and waiting to welcome you. Did he have any feeling on whether, uh, whether there, there's a uh, reunion with pets uh, in, in the resurrection? I never heard him on that. Um, but certainly, to me, everything that we enjoy in this creation will be somehow renewed over there for us, uh, perhaps in a different form. But um, you know, there's a, a lot in the Bible about the renewal of the earth. Uh, the meek will inherit the earth. The, the new city comes down from above. Um, so I think it's, to me it's wrong to think of heaven as a separate place up there. To me, heaven is the, the future state of the earth, you know, which, is so much, which will be so much more wonderful uh, than it is now because it will be freed from all sin um, and crying and tears and, um, and just wasting away our death. Final question. Did uh, uh, it always arises if God has redeemed or is reconciling everything to Himself, whether things in heaven or things on earth, as Colossians says, uh, through Christ or in Christ? Um, I don't know why people are concerned about the devil and demons, but uh, did Tom Torrance discuss the resolution of? of the devil and demons in terms of uh, of the new creation? 
he had a very strong and vivid sense, as the New Testament did, of the reality of, of evil powers. Um, and Christ's whole life was a, a battle with evil. He used to say that evil is essentially parasitic. It cannot exist in its own right. It can only exist as an attack on what is good, so that God has made this creation to be wonderful and good. Somehow, uh, the mystery of evil is that there's this force which attacks it and tries to uh, destroy it. And uh, But Christ has overcome this force. And Torrance used to use the analogy of two grindstones uh, rubbing against each other. One's going one way and the other's going the other. And they're rubbing sparks off each other. And one is saying, I love you. And the other is saying, no, you don't. And that for him was his picture of hell, that God remains love. God has redeemed the whole of creation and the whole of creation will be renewed. And yet somehow the mystery is that some people, as far as we can, according to the Bible, and the Bible's our only authority and guide, will have the freedom to say no and they will say no. And so they refuse to enter this reality and so they're on the outside the fringe. He has a very good understanding of the nature of evil and of the powers of evil. The wheels give a, a great analogy because that's exactly what happens is sparks as, and it erodes you as you continue to say no really to who you are. Yep, yep. To your actual identity of who God has made you to be in Christ. Mm-hmm. And yet it is kind of scary to receive something that you're, you're unfamiliar with. Yes, that's right, because um, it's, it means we're no longer self-centered, we're no longer in control, we're no longer turned in on ourselves. We, uh, we need to learn to look out, to live for others and with others. And that's the life that, um, the new life that, that God holds out for us in Christ. And some people just, I don't know why, it's, it's illogical, it's daft. <laughs> why would we want to persist in, in death when we can have life? You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.